Welcome to Reading Through the New Testament. This is Pastor Spencer with you this week. I hope you're doing well. Thank you for listening uh, to this podcast as we journey through the New Testament together, um, reading five chapters a week, trying to cover the whole New Testament and to see what we can learn from it as our Lord Jesus teaches us through the pages of Scripture, teaches us His Word, and we walk with Him And he instructs us uh, as we walk through the Gospels right now and eventually through the epistles and uh, continuing to the end of the New Testament scriptures. So I hope you're doing well this week. This is week eight on the reading plan. Um, This is for February 20th, uh, the Sunday, February 20th, the week following that. And this week we are scheduled to read Mark 8 through Mark 12. Mark chapter 8 through Mark chapter 12. So we're halfway through the uh, Gospel of Mark, and uh, you'll remember, as we've reminded ourselves, um, that the Gospel of Mark is written by a guy named John Mark, but we also believe that as he was a close friend of the Apostle Peter, that whenever we're reading the Gospel of Mark, we're getting a lot of the insights that Peter was passing along to Mark, who is writing uh, this Gospel instructing us and teaching us about who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. That's what he reveals at the very beginning of his gospel account in Mark chapter 1. And we've talked about how the first half leading up to Peter's confession, like basically the first eight chapters, um, chapter 8 is kind of a middle point, um, teach us that Jesus is the powerful Son of God. The second half of the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, is teaching us that the the powerful Son of God is also the suffering servant. He's a Messiah, a Christ who suffers for us in our place. And so he's bringing together this, what may seem to be a paradox, that the powerful one is the one who suffers. He's the one who becomes weak for our sakes, and it's, but it's actually in his weakness that he demonstrates more than ever his power and might and strength. And that is what Mark is teaching us. That's what Peter wants us to see. And also another thing we've often talked about, that we, we've, I think, mentioned before on this podcast, is that um, Peter here is, is one of the reasons why you can also believe that this is actually some of Peter's insights passed on to Mark, is that the disciples are often pictured as being really ignorant and and not really grasping who Jesus is, why he came. Um, They don't seem to be able to put two and two together. And we see that again in in Mark chapter 8 as well and the following chapters as Jesus is going to now reveal who he is and why he came, and it doesn't make sense to them. So Mark chapter 8 opens up, verses 1 through 26, kind of this is Jesus' ministry leading up to Peter's confession. Uh, in verses 27 through 38, we've got the Peter's confession of Jesus, and Jesus tells uh, them about his coming crucifixion. But this ministry of Jesus leads up to Peter's confession, and read it that way. Know what's coming, the big, the big moment coming. Uh, beginning there in verse 27, but we have the feeding of the 4,000. So we've already had the feeding of the 5,000, and now we have the feeding of the 4,000. And it's fascinating whenever you compare these accounts, right? Because here in the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus here is feeding less people, right, compared to 5,000. He's already done the 5,000 feeding. He feeds less people with more bread on hand and at least the same number of fish and yet there's less left over, whereas before Jesus fed more people with less and had more left over. It's fascinating that the, the numbers, in a sense, Jesus, uh, the numbers don't matter with Jesus. Jesus is able to work and produce and do as he will um, with creation and with uh, this picture of salvation. So he's here feeding 
of the 4,000 men. Um, and eventually, uh, this is going to be leading Jesus to say in the boat, right? They, they go on a boat, Jesus and the uh, disciples, and he tells them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And the disciples are there saying, well, we don't have any bread. And Jesus is sitting in the boat, and he kind of walks them through patiently, walks them through um, the, the two miracles that just happened with the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. And his point is, don't you understand? Don't you understand? Bread is not a problem here with me. What I'm trying to teach you is beware of the teaching, beware of the hypocrisy and the teaching and the lifestyle of the, the influence of the Pharisees and of Herod. That's what he's teaching them. Then Jesus performs this miracle on a blind man, a very interesting miracle, um, similar to a miracle he just did at the tail end of chapter 7 when he heals a deaf man. There's some inter- interesting uh, parallels, if I remember right, that they kind of, uh, Jesus uh, does some interesting ways. He kind of uh, puts his hands on the guy. He doesn't simply speak the words and such. And so some a couple of very interesting miracles, um, and Jesus heals this guy, um, of his of his blindness before Peter then confesses that Jesus is the Christ um, in Mark chapter 8, beginning there with uh, verse 27, when Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? And then he says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. Well, right away, Jesus then tells them, don't tell anybody this, but now I am going to go and suffer, be arrested, die, but I will rise again after three days. And of course, Peter rebukes him. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And Jesus calls all of the disciples now saying, if you're really, if you're going to come after me, you're going to have to take up your cross. I'm taking up my cross. You now have to take up yours. So that's kind of a turning point in the gospel now. The powerful son of God is also the suffering servant who lays down his life for our sins and for our sakes. So then Mark 9 and 10 is really Jesus's ministry on the way to Jerusalem. And I've been helped here again by a New Testament introductory introductory book that's really kind of helped me kind of uh, think about these these passages of Scripture. But uh, we have Jesus's ministry on the way to Jerusalem. We have the transfiguration. We have him teaching about divorce, about young children, and, and they're welcome, they're, that they are welcome into the kingdom of God. Um, We read about the rich young ruler and the necessity of following Christ. And also Jesus continues to predict to these disciples over and over, I am going to die. I will be suffering. I will be, you know, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to die and I will rise after three days. He continues to remind them multiple times about what's going to happen. And the disciples don't know what to make of it. And again, this is highlighting that whole idea that the disciples are not able to put these things together well. Um, they're afraid, we read, to even um, to ask about what, what, is, what is going on. Um, they, they don't even know um, what, what to say or what to do um, uh, about, about Jesus and his predictions. But then whenever he arrives in Jerusalem, in chapter 11 through 12, we read Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. We have the triumphal entry, the cleansing of the temple, the parable of the tenants, right? The same parable is repeated uh, from Matthew's gospel in Mark's gospel, emphasizing, I think, to us that while all the parables of Jesus are important, if something is doubly repeated in the scripture, it might be helpful and important for us all to pay close attention. Our, Our Lord and Savior, Jesus knows that we need repetition to be taught. And he's emphasizing this particular parable to help us understand um, his ministry to Israel, to God's people, um, and, and, then, uh, and then placing that, his crucifixion, within the context of, of, of all that he's done before in the Old Testament and uh, is doing now in the person of Christ. And you can read that parable for yourself there. He also answers those questions that we read about again in Matthew's Gospel, taxes, a marriage and the resurrection, the greatest commandment. And then Jesus also warns them about the scribes before closing with praising a specific woman who has given what she had. Um, Jesus shows the true heart um, and praises the true heart of a, of a sincere and cheerful giver.
So that's Mark chapter 8 through chapter 12 here. So what can we learn from these passages of Scripture? Um, What can we meditate? Let's think about these things together now. And again, we're using J.C. Ryle um, and Charles Spurgeon as uh, two guys to kind of help us just meditate and and consider what we can learn from these passages of Scripture um, that we're going to be reading this week. Well, uh, first of all, from the expository thoughts on the Gospels by J.C. Ryle, I want to point out, first of all, this, this interesting parable, this interesting miracle that Jesus does when he heals the blind man at Bethsaida. It says, uh, And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. So let's look at this parable, or not parable, excuse me, this miracle where Jesus is healing this blind man, and let's think about it together, what we can learn from this and what this means for us. Uh, J.C. Rowell writes this, We do not know the reason of the peculiar means employed by our Lord Jesus Christ in working the miracle recorded in these verses. We see a blind man miraculously healed. We know that a word from our Lord's mouth or a touch of his hand would have been sufficient to effect a cure. But we see Jesus taking this blind man by the hand, leading him. Let me turn the page real quick. Leading him out of the town, spitting on his eyes, putting his hands on them, and then, and not until then, restoring his sight. And the meaning of all these actions, the passage before us leaves entirely unexplained. But it is well to remember, in reading passages of this kind, that the Lord is not tied to the use of any one means. In the conversion of men's souls, there are diversities of operation, but it is the same Spirit which converts. So also, in the healing of men's bodies, there were varieties of agency employed by our Lord, but it was the same divine power that effected the cure. In all his works, God is sovereign. He gives no account of any of his matters. And right there, I, uh, this side note, as we're reading through this, J.C. Rowell, of course, is there t- pointing out the fact that the Lord works in different ways, doesn't he? Here he worked in different ways to heal this man's body, but similarly, when it comes to the souls of men, He works in different ways. He works through different portions of scripture, through different people, through different conversations, all sorts of different experiences and ways that our Lord works through in different ways. He, he, I mean, he is not tied down to any one method, um, but but it shows how powerful and, and that he, we can't control God, can we? But, and so that's a, that's a good reminder, isn't it? Uh, continuing on here with uh, J.C. Rowell from this passage here, he says, One thing in the passage demands our special observation. That thing is the gradual nature of the cure which our Lord performed on this blind man. He did not deliver him from his blindness at once, but by degrees. He might have done it in a moment, but he chose to do it step by step. First, the blind man said that he only saw men as trees walking. Afterwards, his eyesight was restored completely, and he saw every man clearly. In this respect, the miracle stands entirely alone. We need hardly doubt that this gradual cure was meant to be an emblem of spiritual things. We may be sure that there was a deep meaning in every word and work of our Lord's earthly ministry, and here, as in other places, we shall find a useful lesson. Let us see then in this gradual restoration of to sight a vivid illustration of the manner in which the spirit frequently works in the conversion of souls. And this is very helpful isn't it, as we continue to read here from Ryle that this is a picture to us also of the way in which God works to convert men and women and bring them to himself in saving faith. JC Ryle continues, we are all naturally blind and ignorant in the matters which concern our souls. Conversion is an illumination, a change from darkness to light, from blindness to seeing the kingdom of God. Yet few converted people see things distinctly at first. The nature and proportion of doctrines, practices, and ordinances of the gospel are dimly seen by them and imperfectly understood. 
They are like the man before us, who at first saw men as trees walking. Their vision is dazzled and unaccustomed to the new world into which they have been introduced. It is not until the work of the Spirit has become deeper and their experience has been somewhat matured that they see all things clearly and give to each part of religion its proper place. This is the history of thousands of God's children. They begin with seeing men as trees walking. They end with seeing all, excuse me, they begin with seeing men as trees walking. They end with seeing all clearly. Happy is he who has learned this lesson well and is humble and distrustful of his own judgment. Finally, and this is the last point from J.C. Ryle, let us see in the gradual cure of this blind man a striking picture of the present position of Christ-believing people in the world compared with that which is to come. We see in part and know in part in the present dispensation. We are like those that travel by night. We know not the meaning of much that is passing around us. In the providential dealings of God with his people and in the conduct of many of God's saints, we see much that we cannot understand and cannot alter. In short, we are like him that saw men as trees walking. But let us look forward and take comfort. The time comes when we shall all see when we shall see all clearly. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us be content to wait and watch and work and pray. When the day of the Lord comes, our spiritual eyesight will be perfected. We shall see as we have been seen and know as we have been known. I think that's a very helpful passage um, and illustration. I think this miracle is intriguing because Peter, right, is trying to show us the, the who Jesus is, but he's showing us also that the disciples don't get who Jesus is. And this p- miracle here is kind of a picture of the whole gospel of Mark, in a sense, where it starts, Jesus starts to heal their eyes, and right, they start to see things. They begin to see things and see things that are true. Peter here is going to see that Jesus is the Christ, and he starts to, he does begin to have some sight, but he still doesn't see everything clearly, does he? That's why whenever Jesus starts to say, listen, I'm also now, now I'm the Christ, yes, but I'm going to go and suffer and die and rise again. Peter says, no, 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 this can't happen. Peter was like this man who had been, his eyes had been opened, but they were, things were still blurry. It was going to take the cross and the resurrection and Pentecost for Peter to see even more clearly who Jesus was, why he came. So in, in many ways, we're all like this man, aren't we? And this is why we come to church as well. Um, I think so often in our society, we want everything in an instant. I'm like that, right? We go get fast food. We go and get uh, this or that at the store, whatever we want. Everything comes quickly. We have Amazon Prime, right? We get everything really fast. Well, in spiritual matters, spiritual matters work much more like this miracle. It's gradual. It progresses. There is progress, but it doesn't necessarily happen overnight, The Lord works in many different ways and mysterious ways in our lives. Um, And maybe if we're going through a very difficult time, right, in our lives, maybe we're going through a trial in our lives um, or, or whatever, and we don't understand why it's happening. Well, maybe there's going to be some level of light that you're understanding. God helps you through the scriptures and or maybe through the help of other people. You begin to understand more but you don't understand it perfectly. Maybe maybe God will show you that later on in your life uh, through Scripture, through providence. As you look back, you'll be able to see, oh, I can see what God was doing. But maybe that's only going to happen fully at eternity, right? And in heaven, uh, in the new heavens and the new earth, when we will see everything perfectly the way that we ought to. And I think that that's, that's a helpful thing to teach us patience, to teach us to work now, Um, with the sight that God has given to us, to be grateful for the sight that we do have. It should also remind us to be humble, that we, all of us, none of us see everything the way we should see them. And as Ryle points out, even if we're true believers, right, we're true believers and such, but sometimes we can hold certain doctrines or truths out of proportion with other doctrines. Um, We can emphasize one thing at the expense of another. We're all guilty of this, and we all need each other to help balance each other out, right? That's why we also need the whole church to help us stay balanced. 
And so just a good reminder of how God works slowly but surely, and he will work surely. Um, but, but just our Lord works in mysterious ways. And uh, I think that was a helpful reminder from that, from that miracle um, as well. Okay, so let's now move on, not very far, to the next set of verses, because it's such a, an important part of, gosp- of the Gospels and of Mark's Gospel about when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And, and you know this story, Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And then he says, who do you say that I am? So let's read about this. Let's think about this. This is from J.C. Ryle um, as we look here about from these passages, from these verses, Mark 28, 27 through verse 33. So Mark 8, 27 through 33. This is J.C. Ryle. The circumstances here recorded are of great importance. They took place during a journey and arose out of a conversation by the way. Happy are those journeys in which time is not wasted on trifles, but redeemed as far as possible for the consideration of serious things. Let us observe the variety of opinions about Christ which prevailed among the Jews. Some said that he was John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others one of the prophets. In short, every kind of opinion appears to have been current, excepting that one which was true. We may see the same thing on every side at the present day. Christ and his gospel are just as little understood in reality and are the subject of just as many different opinions as they were 1,800 years ago. And, and by the way, real quick, side note, remember J.C. Ryle's writing in the 1800s, so it would have been 1,800 years ago. For us, it would be 2,000 years ago, right? Uh, I continue. Many know the name of Christ, acknowledge him as one who came into the world to save sinners, and regularly worship in buildings set apart for his service. Few thoroughly realize that he is very God, the one mediator, the one high priest, the only source of life and peace their shepherd, and their own friend. Vague ideas about Christ are still very common. Intelligent, experimental acquaintance with Christ is still very rare. May we never rest until we can say of Christ, My beloved is mine, and I am his. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 16. This is saving knowledge. This is life eternal. J.C. Ryle continues, Let us observe the good confession of faith which the Apostle Peter witnessed. He replied to our Lord's question, Whom do you say that I am? You are the Christ. This was a noble answer. When the circumstances under which it was made are duly considered, it was made when Jesus was poor in condition, without honor, majesty, wealth, or power. It was made when the heads of the Jewish nation, both in church and state, refused to receive Jesus as the Messiah. Yet even then, Simon Peter says, you are the Christ. His strong faith was not stumbled by our Lord's poverty and low estate. His confidence was not shaken by the opposition of scribes and Pharisees and the contempt of rulers and priests. None of these things move Simon Peter. He believed that he whom he followed, Jesus of Nazareth, was the promised Savior, the true prophet greater than Moses, the long-predicted Messiah. He declared it boldly and and unhesitatingly as the creed of himself and, and his few companions, You are the Christ. There is much that we may profitably learn from Peter's conduct on this occasion. Erring and unstable as he sometimes was, The faith he exhibited in the passage now before us is well worthy of imitation. Such bold confessions as his are the truest evidence of living faith and are required in every age if men will prove themselves to be Christ's disciples. We too must be ready to confess Christ, even as Peter did. We shall never find our master and his doctrine popular. We must be prepared to confess him with few on our side and many against us. But let us take courage and walk in Peter's steps and we shall not fail of receiving Peter's reward. Jesus takes notice of those who confess him before men, and will one day confess them as his servants before an assembled world. Ryle continues, Let us observe the full declaration which our Lord makes of his own coming death and resurrection. We read that he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. The events here announced must have sounded strange to the disciples. 
To be told that their beloved master, after all his mighty works, would soon be put to death, must have been heavy tidings, and past their understanding. But the words which convey the announcement are scarcely less remarkable than the event. He must suffer. He must be killed. He must rise again. Why did our Lord say must? Did he mean that he was unable to escape suffering? That he must die by compulsion of a stronger power than his own? Impossible. This could not have been his meaning. Did he mean that he must die to give a great example to the world of self-sacrifice and self-denial, and that this and this alone made his death necessary? Once more it may be replied, impossible. There is a far deeper meaning in the word must suffer and be killed. He meant that his death and passion were necessary in order to make atonement for man's sin. Without shedding his blood, there could be no remission. Without the sacrifice of his body on the cross, there could be no satisfaction to God's holy law. He must suffer to make reconciliation for iniquity. He must die because without his death as a propitiatory offering, sinners could never have life. He must suffer because without his vicarious sufferings, our sins could never be taken away. In a word, he must be delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. Here is the center truth of the Bible, J.C. Ryle says. Let us never forget that. All other truths compared to this are of secondary importance. Whatever views we hold of religious truth, let us see that we have a firm grasp upon the atoning efficacy of Christ's death. Let the truth so often proclaimed by our Lord to his disciples and so diligently taught by the disciples to the world be the foundation truth in our Christianity. In life and in death, in health and in sickness, let us all lean all our weight on this mighty fact that though we have sinned, Christ has died for sinners and that though we deserve nothing, Christ has suffered on the cross for us and by that suffering purchased heaven for him or purchased heaven for all who believe in him. Now, I'm going to stop there, um, but, but that is so good, isn't it? That's such a good reminder to us of, of why Jesus said that he must come. We want to take that doctrine to the world, but also remind it to each other. I wonder how often uh, in our church and in other churches, um, how often do we remember and do we meditate upon this basic fact that is of primary importance, the fact that Jesus Christ must come, that he did come as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. I know sometimes, uh, you know, we, we, we sing those songs about, I love the old, old story, twill be my theme in glory, to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. We sing those songs like, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Um, we sing songs about the old rugged cross, and we emphasize those things. And I think that is so wonderful. Um, we as Christians, there are many other things that are part of the uh, Christian fa faith, the, the truth of Christianity, right? We have certain teachings that, that we want to, that teach us how we should live as Christians, how, what, what, what our conduct should look like as followers of disciples and those who are in Christ, we read in the, in the Gospels and in the whole Bible about instructions about marriage, about raising children, um, all sorts of things. And those things are very important. But they're not as important and should not be as emphasized as this truth that Jesus came to die, to suffer, to give up his life for our sins for our sakes, and to be raised for our justification. This is why our pastor and all of the, the pastoral staff, and this is why we as a church, why we continue to sing and pray and think about the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because it is the center and the heart of, of our religion as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, and it is the heart, the beating, pulsing heart 
of MMBC, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Um, compared to other messages that we could preach or that we could think about or that we could read about in the Bible, God seems to be blaringly obvious in the scriptures that he wants us before all else, not neglecting the other things, mind you, we don't neglect those things, but front and center and placarded before us in the church and also to the whole world, we have a risen, crucified Savior. Um, and, And he ministers in our midst every Sunday. He ministers to us as we read the Bible at home, as we pray to him. He ministers to us and cares for us even while we're asleep. We have him in common, and he and all that he has done for us is at the center of our religion. He is everything to us. And so I think that is so encouraging, so important for us to not forget that, though, either, right? Because um, we see many churches sometimes can, can unintentionally, mind you, they're not meaning to do this, but we can so easily drift away, right? And the book of Hebrews talks about that, that we can seemingly just drift away but if we're not careful what feels like just drifting or sliding or whatever to us can actually have great dramatic and significant consequences for us if we're not careful to come back to this basic truth and to meditate upon this fact that Christ has died for sinners and suffered on the cross for us and purchased heaven for all who will believe. So important, isn't it? So wonderful. And so at the center of Mark's gospel and of the whole of Scripture. Okay, so we've, we're going to move out of Mark 8, skip Mark chapter 9. I'm not saying we don't want to skip reading it, but um, the next part that I want to talk about with you is Jesus and the children. This is actually a, from Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. You know the story. The children are brought to Jesus. The disciples rebuke the, the parents from bringing uh, the children, and Jesus says, uh, Jesus is angry, actually indignant, and says, let the children come to me, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Spurgeon has a sermon, Charles Spurgeon, the the great Baptist preacher um, from the 1800s, preached a sermon called Jesus and the Children from this passage. And he's got a a great section here um, about how Jesus condemns the fault of hindering the children from coming to him. And I want to read this to you, uh, some of this this from uh, Spurgeon to you right now. He writes this, And now let us notice thirdly, this is from his sermon, obviously, how Jesus condemned this fault. First, he condemned it as contrary to his own spirit. They brought young children to him that he should touch them, and his disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased. He was not often displeased. Certainly he was not often much displeased. And when he was much displeased, we may be sure that the cause was serious. He was displeased at these children being pushed away from him, for it was so contrary to his mind about them. The disciples did wrong to the mothers. They rebuked the parents for doing a motherly act, for doing, in fact, that which Jesus loved them to do. They brought their children to Jesus out of respect to him. They valued a blessing from his hands more than gold. They expected that the benediction of God would go with the touch of the great prophet. They may have hoped that a touch of the hand of Jesus would make their children's lives bright and happy. Though there may have been a measure of weakness in the parents' thought, yet the Savior could not judge harshly of that which arose out of reverence to his person. He was therefore much displeased to think that those good women who meant him honor should be roughly repulsed. There was also wrong done to the children. Sweet little ones, what had they done that they should be chided for coming to Jesus? They had not meant to intrude. Dear things, they would have fallen at his feet in reverent love for the sweet-voiced teacher, who charmed not only men, but children by his tender words. The little ones meant no harm, and why should they be blamed? Besides, there was wrong done to himself. It might have made men think that Jesus was stiff, reserved, and self-exalted like the rabbis. If they had thought that he could not condescend to children, they would have sadly slandered the repute of his great love. His heart was a great harbor wherein many little ships might cast anchor. Jesus, the child man, was never more at home than with children. The holy child Jesus had an affinity for children. 
Was he to be represented by his own disciples as shutting the door against children? It would do sad injury to his character. Therefore, grieved at the triple evil which wounded the mothers, the children, and himself, he was sorely displeased. Anything we do to hinder a dear child from coming to Jesus greatly displeases our dear Lord. He cries to us, Stand off! Let them alone! Let them come to me and forbid them not! Dear gray-headed friends, who are so strict and good, I must get you to stand back a bit and suffer that child to come to Jesus, for I do not wish the Lord to be displeased with you. And you, good Christian sisters, who have curdled a little, a little in your temper, I must beg you to be quiet lest the Lord should be displeased with you, as he will be if you forbid the children to come to him. So, you see, it was contrary to his spirit. Next, it was contrary to his teaching, for he went on to say, Whoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter it. Christ's teaching was not that there is something in us to fit us for the kingdom of God, and that a certain number of years may make us capable of receiving grace. All his teaching went the other way, namely, that we are to be nothing, and that the less we are, and the weaker we are, the better. For the less we have of self, the more room there is for his divine grace. Do you think to come to Jesus up the ladder of knowledge? Come down, sir. You will meet him at the foot. Do you think to reach Jesus up the steep hill of experience? Come down, dear climber. He stands in the plain. Oh, but when I am old, I shall be then be prepared for Christ. Stay where you are, young man. Jesus meets you at the door of life. You were never more fit to meet him than now. He asks nothing of you, but that you will be nothing, and that he may be all in all to you. That is his teaching. And to send back the child because it has not this or that is to fly in the teeth of the blessed doctrine of the grace of God. Once more, it was quite contrary to Jesus Christ's practice. He made them see this, for he took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. All his life, there is nothing in him like rejection and refusing. He says truly, him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. If he did cast out any because they were too young, the text would be falsified at once. But that can never be. He is the receiver of all who come to him. It is written, this man receives sinners and eats with them. All his life he might be drawn as a shepherd with a lamb in his bosom. Never as a cruel shepherd setting his dogs upon the lambs and driving them and their mothers away. I have neither time nor strength to say more, and I must close with a mere glance at our last point. That was Spurgeon. You can see how he was preaching. Wow, I think that is so good, um, because not only is it a good reminder to us about um, children and the fact that as Christians, as a church, we have a special care and a place for the little ones. Um, I think uh, sometimes, right, we, we think that they're in a separate class and then they have to be prepared before they can then come to Jesus or they, uh, you know, whatever. But, but here the mothers, they were bringing, as we see from the other gospels, even infants to Jesus that he might bless them. And Jesus welcomes all of us, all of these children to be brought right up to him. And we bring our children to Jesus when we bring them uh, to him in prayer when we pray for them, we bring our children to Jesus whenever we bring them to his word at home, when we read the Bible with them, when we teach them God's word, then because through that, Jesus is speaking to them. It's so important to remind you of that. When, when you are teaching your children or other children about Jesus, it is actually Jesus speaking through you to teach them. He is actually discipling them then and there. And whenever you bring them to Sunday school or to church and they're taught the Bible and whenever they hear the preached word and sing songs and hear the prayers prayed, they are around Jesus and being taught by him and being brought to him and blessed by him. And Jesus is receiving them, welcoming them, calling them to himself and embracing them in his arms. We have such a gentle Savior. So it reminds us of that, but it also reminds us of the way in which the gospel works in general. We are so prone to think that somehow, some way, as Spurgeon says, we've got to climb the ladder of knowledge. We've got to figure all this stuff out before we can come to Jesus and climb the ladder of knowledge to get up to Jesus. 
Jesus says, no, 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 no. You meet me at the bottom of the ladder, right? Remember from John's gospel, he is the ladder. (laughs) He is the ladder upon which the angels of God go up and down. He is the bridge, the mediator. So we meet him at our lowest point, not whenever we figured it out. Um, We meet him not when we've cleaned up our life, but before we've ever thought about cleaning up our life. He meets us there at the lowest and the bottom point. He meets us even as children. He cares for us and he welcomes them to himself. Uh, we, we, We don't know... Uh, everything about how the Lord works and how he saves and everything, but we do know that he doesn't receive He doesn't receive us because of who we are, but despite who we are. And little children are so ready and, and there to be, to be taught by Christ. And it is a wonderful privilege and an encouragement to know that when the Lord Jesus begins to offer himself to a child, the child is brought under the ministry of the word of God at home by the parents and, and at Sunday school and at church that that is blessed. You know, we, we read in the scriptures that ordinarily faithful, that when children are brought under the hearing of the word of God, it is a, a good sign. And generally we can see that God blesses that to the conversion of souls and prayers and, and all of that. Such a wonderful reminder to us about the value of children in our church and uh, the place they should have in our hearts as well. Okay, um, <clears throat> let me see here. What do I got here? I want to read this uh, now from Mark chapter 10 again, where Jesus, this is, uh, I'm going to base this off of Mark 10, 38, where Jesus, uh, is, am I right? No, not Mark 10, 38. Well, as you can tell, we're really organized here on the podcast. But it is a passage of Scripture which teaches about the fact that we are to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Um, Wow. Apparently my text is wrong um, (laughs) on my my paper here and in the uh, passage. So I'm going to read a section uh, from Spurgeon here to you about the cross. Spurgeon here has a section where he... he, he, um, I think the sermon is called The Procession of Crossbearers. And it just reminds us also of the call here to carry the cross, to take up our cross, and to follow Jesus, to follow him, right? And so here, let's read this, and, uh, and I think it'll be helpful. He says this, Your mind's eye can see that procession yonder. Notice it carefully. At the head of it there walks one who we, whom we rightly call Master and Lord, You may know him by the prints of the nails in his hands and feet. I observe that he carries a cross and that it is a very heavy one. Do you see the long line of following him? They are all those of whom the world was not worthy. That line has been continued even to this day and will be continued until the present dispensation shall close. As you watch these different followers of Christ in the procession, one thing will strike you. However much they differ in some respects, they are all alike in one thing. Every one of them carries a cross. There is no exception to this rule. From the master down to the last disciple, it is a procession of cross bearers. The day will come when there will be a transformation scene, and you will see all these cross bearers transformed into crown wearers. But rest assured that the old motto, no cross, no crown, is certainly true, and those who refuse to carry the cross after Christ on earth shall never be permitted to wear the crown with Christ in the land that is beyond the stars. The chief business of a Christian is to follow Christ. You may sum up all his life in that expression. He has Christ in him. Christ gives him new life from day to day, and the very way in which that life expends its force is in the following of Christ. I would, dear friends, that you and I would aim at so following him as to gain a distinction for the closeness of our walk. For there are some in heaven of whom it is written, These are they which follow the Lamb wherever he goes. There are some who seem to follow him but partially. There are many wanderings and many inconsistencies in their life. But thrice blessed shall he be who, like Caleb, follows the Lord fully and with purpose of heart puts his foot down in the very footprints of his crucified Lord. If you are a disciple of Jesus, your chief business is to follow Jesus. 
But there are difficulties in the way, and there are difficult, and these difficulties are what is meant by the cross. There are difficulties in the way of making a profession of faith in Jesus and of walking worthy of it. All these difficulties are a burden too heavy for flesh and blood to carry. Only divine grace can enable us to take it up. And when we do take it up, we are fulfilling the words of the text, take up the cross and follow me. I think that was, I thought that was a, a, a powerful image, the idea of a procession of cross bearers, that as we all follow Jesus, there is this procession of all of us carrying our cross as we follow him. Jesus said, take up the cross and follow me. He told his disciples that, he tells us that. And uh, a powerful reminder of the cross and of, of its necessity that we carry that as Christians. But we will have the crown in the next life, um, in the next world after the resurrection. But I, I just thought that was a powerful image, and that's why I wanted to share that with you as well. Okay, one last thing, and I know we've gone a little long, but one last section here, and this is based off of Mark chapter 12, uh, verses 18 through 27. Uh, Jesus here is teaching uh, and responding to the questions of the uh, Sadducees here. And he um, teaches them and says in verse 24, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. I believe that's where this, um, yeah, this is where this is going to be from. And J.C. Ryle uh, says this uh, in this passage. He says, we learn in the second place, because I'm stealing from the middle part of his exposition here, but he says, we learn from this passage how much of religious error may be traced to ignorance of the Bible. Our Lord's first words in reply to the Sadducees declare this plainly. He says, do you not err because you know not the scriptures? The truth of the principle here laid down is proved by facts in almost every age of church history. The Reformation in Josiah's day was closely connected with the discovery of the book of the law. The false doctrines of the Jews in our Lord's time were the result of neglecting the scriptures. The dark ages of Christendom were times when the Bible kept back, was kept back from the people. The Protestant Reformation was mainly affected by translating and circulating the Bible. The churches which are most flourishing at this day are churches which honor the Bible. The nations which enjoy most moral light are nations in which the Bible is most known. The parishes in our land where there is most true religion are those in which the Bible is most studied. The godliest families are Bible-reading families. The holiest men and women are Bible-reading people. These are simple facts which cannot be denied. Let these things sink deeply into our hearts and bear fruit in our lives. Let us not be ignorant of the Bible, lest we fall into some deadly error. Let us rather read it diligently and make it our rule of faith and practice. Let us labor to spread the Bible over the world. The more the book is known, the better the world will be. Not least, let us teach our children to value the Bible. The very best portion we can give them is a knowledge of the scriptures. I appreciated that, and I think that's a helpful way to close our time together this week and why we're doing this Bible reading plan. We want to know God's word and we see how much religious error we are going if we the more that we don't know the scriptures the more we won't know God and his ways and what he expects of us. Right? Our religion, our faith, our who the way in which we practice our religion, how we come to church, how we hear his word how we live our lives is going to be impacted and influenced to the degree that we do or do not know the Bible. So we want to be a church. We want to be Christians. We want to be a family of God and, uh, and our individual families to be places where the Bible is honored and treasured and valued. Perhaps it's a good time for me and for you to ask ourselves, do we really appreciate the Bible? I remember hearing an old uh, Puritan sermon uh, from a long time ago, from hundreds of years ago, and I believe the pastor would, he almost was acting uh, as if he was portraying two different parts between God and the people. Uh, that he, and he, it was, uh, God was saying, you know, since you don't appreciate my Bible, I'll just take it back from you since you're not using it anymore. And the people respond, and they basically, they're terrified. They realize the value of the Bible, and, and they say, Lord, you say, Lord, please uh, take away everything that we have, but don't take away the Bible from us. And, and God, at the end in this, this, this sermon, 
uh, says, all right, here, take it, have it again, and try it again to take my scriptures with you. And I do wonder, for me and for you, how much do we value God's sacred word? How much do we read it? Do we believe it? Do we think about it? Whenever we come to church, do we expect to hear a lot of the Bible or as little as possible? Do we expect our songs that we sing to be rooted in scriptural truth and in the scriptures themselves, or do we want to sing about ourselves or other things? When we hear our prayers that are prayed in church or when we pray at home, are we praying at home according to scripture, or are we just praying for whatever we think we ought to, or are we going back to the Bible to be taught how to pray? In our family life, are we governed by scripture, or are we governed by the way in which other families around us in this world work? Or are we trying to make sure that we, our lives as families and as, as individuals conform to the Bible, to the Word of God? In, in the way that we think about God and our relationship to Him and who He is, are our ideas just drawn from the world around us or are they drawn from the Bible? You see what I'm saying, I'm getting at, is... I think we all need to be re-challenged many different times to realize what an infinitely valuable gift the Bible is. It is more precious than gold. It is more valuable than silver. It is supremely valuable. It is the chosen means by which God has told us, he's told us this, that, that he speaks through and in the pages and in the words of this book. Now, of course, uh, we, we need the Holy Spirit to teach us and to help us understand these things and to create faith in our hearts, and we need the Holy Spirit to teach us. That's, that's his job, right? He takes the things of Scripture and applies them and renews our minds and opens us up to, to embrace the things that are found in this wonderful holy book. But do we appreciate Scripture is it really at our heart? Is it, is, is, I remember uh, I heard the story about John Bunyan. Somebody said, I think maybe it was Spurgeon, that if you, if you were to prick John Bunyan, if you were to cut him, he would have bled bibline. In other words, he was so full of the Bible, so full of Scripture, that in a sense, if you were to cut him anywhere, you, he would have just flowed out Scripture himself. He was just a walking Bible, so to speak. Um, do, are we like that? Do we want to be like that? Let's work together. Let's work together as a church, and God will help us. He blesses that whenever we are devoted to his word, to studying scripture, to having our minds and our hearts and our hands and our actions and all that we are conformed to his word. He blesses that because Jesus is speaking to us in sacred scripture, teaching us, creating faith in our hearts, showing us what he's done for us. It's a wonderful book. And let's appreciate it. And, uh, and, I, and I know that as we read the Bible, our love for it more and more will just increase, won't it? Well, thank you for listening uh, this week to uh, this, this time. I, I appreciate it. Read uh, Mark 8 through Mark 12 next week, Mark 13. And then we will at the tail end begin Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. So thank you for listening to this. Um, I look forward to hearing from you. Take care and God bless.